This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream new episodes every Thursday. All you need to do is subscribe to keep up to date. Today we're looking back at the Roman period, but this time through the lens of Edwardian archaeologists who discovered Corbridge Roman Town between 1906 and 1914. As you may have heard in previous episodes, Corbridge, or Coria to use its original name, was a major settlement two and a half miles south of Hadrian's Wall in the northeast of England. And we know this because of the groundbreaking work carried out more than a hundred years ago, which has led to Corbridge now claiming one of the most important Roman collections in Britain. And joining us now to relive the story of discovery is Dr. Francis McIntosh, who is curator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region. Now, Francis, Corbridge's original name was Coria. What does that mean exactly? Well, so it means actually in Celtic, not in Latin. So in the kind of the language of Britain before the Romans arrived, it means hosting place. So it shows that it was probably a central meeting place before the Romans arrived. And that's why they've kind of adopted that name. It's in a really good position. For the Romans, it's part of the Northwest Frontier system of their empire near Hadrian's Wall. But locally, it's sitting in the Tyne Valley. It's got very good viewpoints both north and south and east and west. It's above the floodplain of the River Tyne, which it sits near. So it would have been, you know, a good place for meeting or hosting at any time of the life of the site, never mind just in the Roman period. Yeah, I can understand why they would have built a settlement there with all those geographical features that uh, are beneficial to sustaining human life, basically. Um, What would the town have been like in its heyday under the Roman occupation? It'd be the complete opposite of what you see now when you come to visit the site. You know, the well, unless we have, you know, a big unruly school group or lots of very excited archaeological tourists, because it's quite a tranquil site. It would have been really busy. It would have been noisy, smelly, crowded. Your senses would really have been assaulted. There's a big main high street along which everyone who passed through Corbridge would have gone. There would have been potteries, which would have taken up large amount of space. Their kilns would have created smoke. There'd be other industries. We've got evidence of glass working, metal working, bone working. Presumably there's leather working as well and tanneries don't smell particularly nice. It would have been a busy town on the edge of the empire, but um, it had an arterial road running through it going north-south. So Deer Street from uh, York, which carried on through Corbridge all the way up to Hadrian's Wall. And then the Stain Gate, which is the medieval name for the east-west road, running between Corbridge and Carlisle. So it would have been a really bustling, kind of, I suppose, in a way, what we might think of as a market town with lots going on, markets there, people coming to buy things, people living there and making their money from the economy of the people living there. You've mentioned those really important roads that were central to the success of Corbridge uh, from an economic perspective. But what else ensured that it was such a vibrant and busy place? Well, Corbridge is only two miles south of Hadrian's Wall. So it's part of the wider, what we now kind of call the frontier zone. And Hadrian's Wall, with its thousands of soldiers and civilians associated with it, are a huge economic market. So although Corbridge isn't on the wall, the fact that it's on those two really important roads, you know, anyone coming up to the wall has to pass through Corbridge if you're coming north. But also 
Although there are small towns or what we might call extramural settlements outside of the forts and all along the wall, Corbridge is a bigger town and so it would have had more things to offer people. So you might not have been able to get everything you needed from your settlement outside your fort. You might have to send to Corbridge for other things. And indeed, evidence from the Vindolanda tablets talks about that, about someone going to Coria to collect supplies. Someone even is asking for leave to go to Corbridge. So Corbridge is bigger um, than the small settlements outside the forts and it's because it's able to capitalise on you know the huge market that the army brings. How long did Corbridge Roman Town survive then compared to other settlements that existed alongside the military forts of Hadrian's Wall? So those settlements that we just talked about around each of the forts on the wall seem to go out of use around about 275 AD. We've talked about that actually in previous episodes that we think that's to do with reduction in troop numbers meaning that there isn't enough of a market to support the economy of each of those towns outside the forts. However, Corbridge in the 4th century, so when these towns outside of the forts have gone out of use, Corbridge is in a real boom phase. I would say the 4th century seems to be when Corbridge is at its largest, at its most successful, almost at its wealthiest. We have a um, queen hoard that must have been deposited after 383 AD because of the coins in there, and it's made of gold coins, which are extremely rare in Britain. And we also have something called the Corbridge Lanx, and that's a silver tray. It's called a Lanx because when it was found in the 18th century, that was the kind of term that was used for that sort of material. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's cast and has inscribed detail of mythological scenes related to the worship of Apollo. It's an absolutely beautiful piece. If you go onto our website, we've had it 3D scanned so you can look at it in more detail. But there's a huge amount of wealth in Corbridge in the 4th and early 5th century. And what we think happens is that Corbridge fills the gap. So although there isn't enough of a economic market to have a town outside every one of the 16 forts, once those forts lose their towns, they all need to go to probably Corbridge or Carlisle in the west. And so Corbridge actually benefits from those other settlements going downhill or closing up shop. Mm. So it's great really because you have the evidence. Corbridge is occupied before Hedrin's Wall because before the town there was forts there from the late 70s or early 80s right through until the early 5th century so it's a, an extremely exciting site to study because it's got such a longevity. Yes definitely so it starts off in a great geographical position and that then creates a, a great economy and activity and then of course it then becomes a sort of regional hub on the right hand side of the map so to speak. Yeah, so Corbridge in the east and Carlisle in the west seem to remain occupied. Carlisle, there's less evidence than at Corbridge because there's less excavation, but they act as, you know, the economic hubs and the towns where the soldiers in the forts can come to get supplies when their extramural settlements come out of use. You've mentioned this longevity of Corbridge, which is fantastic for telling the story and for historians and for people learning about it and, and visiting. Is it Corbridge's longevity that ensures this great number of finds when it was eventually excavated in the uh, early 20th century? Partly. I think, you know, it's occupied for a long time. So obviously that gives us more time for people to drop things and lose things that we can then find later. But partly it's because it was a town and not just a fort. So it's got different kind of occupation. And when forts um, are occupied, if a unit moves out, they probably take everything with them or kind of pop it in a rubbish dump or a burn things. There's evidence at Vindolanda for that sort of clearing out. Whereas in a town, the occupation is much more different, much more organic, there's much more going on. And also 
we know Corbridge is a super complicated site. That at one point, we had some legionary soldiers stationed here. Now, the legionary soldiers are the citizen soldiers who came up to the area to build Hadrian's Wall, whereas it was manned, the troops stationed on the wall were auxiliary troops who are recruited from the provinces and the legionaries are better paid than the auxiliary troops. So we wonder if partly because it was a town, there's more money. So, for example, we have people wealthy enough to accrue gold coins, but also the legionaries who are based there are also going to have more disposable income and perhaps would expect better quality of accommodation so that maybe affects the architecture that's there so it's a real complicated picture about why you know why the material culture from Corbridge is just so wonderful and why the architecture and the stonework is of such high quality mm. a multi-layered explanation really which... yeah definitely and that really I think sums up Corbridge it's a really complicated site you know mm. it's not just a fort it's not just a town it's occupied for a long time there's changes the military come in and out and for me it's what makes it fascinating and really interesting absolutely it's, it's those layers that we're sort of going to dig into now literally as we yep. start to talk about the excavations that took place in the 20th century these took place by edwardian excavators who led the excavation in 1906 the northumberland county history committee were writing the Victoria County history that included Northumberland and the parish of Corbridge. And they wanted to settle the character of the site. So they knew that there was something Roman in the area because some inscriptions had been brought up by ploughing. The silver lanx that we just talked about earlier was discovered by the blacksmith's daughter down in the river in 1735. But they didn't feel that they knew quite what was there and for them to write the chapter you know they wanted to know that so they got Francis Haverfield who was an archaeologist based at Oxford University to lead the excavations although he actually only visited weekly (laughs) which is very different today and he left us running the site to Leonard Woolley and people might know Leonard Woolley's name because he later goes on to be famous for excavating Ur in Mesopotamia What's not ideal is that Leonard Woolley had never been to an excavation before he came to Corbridge. Ah, (laughs) Um, So he was a student at Oxford and Francis Haverfield was in charge of multiple excavations. And so he came and set Leonard off and then left him to it. But thankfully, someone called William Knowles, who was a local architect and a really good archaeologist, was also involved in the early days. And he was on site and it's his plans and his records that really are um, important today and then in the second year 1907 Robert Forster who was local to the area and another respected archaeologist he lived in London at that point but he used to come up every year and stay in Corbridge for the season so the excavation was led by mostly people linked to Oxford it's just the way it happened and they brought students up and then they employed local labourers to do the really hard work of moving the tons of soil and Mm. stone. You mentioned that they already knew that there was some sort of Roman thing underneath Mm. the ground here. To what extent did they know how big this was? Oh, they had absolutely no idea. We don't know exactly what they expected to find. So in 1857, McLaughlin had done the first survey of Hadrian's Wall. He was a surveyor by train and he'd surveyed and planned all the forts and the settlements along Hadrian's Wall. And he put in Corbridge that... There was something there he'd drawn. He thought there was maybe a ditch or a a wall around the outside and estimated maybe some buildings that he could see kind of from the lumps and bumps in the ground. But they really had no idea. And 
they were just so surprised, I think, when they started excavating and realised the kind of the level of the preservation and the standard of the architecture that they were discovering. How is this all paid for then? Well, for 1906, it's not particularly clear where the funding came from. We think perhaps the Northumberland History Committee might have had, you know, a pot of money to do research so that they could write this book. But once they realised it was going to be a much bigger project than the five weeks that they (laughs) had set aside Mm. in 1906, they set up the trustees of the Corbridge Excavation Fund and they asked for subscriptions and donations. And in the reports for 1907 and 1908, we see a list of all the people who gave money And it was local people, the Duke of Northumberland, other archaeologists and local wealthy people. But also they applied for money to the Society of Antiquities of London and the British Archaeological Association. And I think it was a real big task to drum up the money that they did need to fund this excavation. Because as they go on, what's really interesting is you see each year they keep saying, oh, the work was quite expensive because the archaeology was so deep or there was so much discovered and I think it was a big task for them to be able to fund this work. I suppose yes to justify the work because the more they dig the more they discover don't they effectively because we should say to our listeners at this stage that these excavations go on for a further eight seasons so we are talking about a considerable amount of work that is taking place over a number of years in order to unearth this Roman treasure of archaeology so just to go back to sort of the early years yeah. in 1906 in the first excavation, do we know how many people were involved in that one? Yeah, so there was Francis Haverfield who came for his weekly supervision visits. There was Leonard Woolley who was a supervisor and William Knowles who was who was a trained architect but he was there as a, his surveyor and planner. And he, we have between six and nine men who were labourers okay. who were uncovering things for them and they were there for five weeks. So it's quite small, really, because they thought that would be enough to give them enough information to write this chapter and it be done and dusted. But that's yes. not quite how it worked out. <laughs> it's a difficult thing with uh, projects, isn't yeah. it? You, you always sort of uh, underquote. And, that's uh, right, yeah. But um, were the labourers paid? Yes. So we don't know exactly how much, but what we have done with the project is looked at data for comparative roles so there's been studies to look at the weekly wages for an agricultural labourer or people working on the railroads or that sort of thing so we can look at studies that have done that work where they've got the documents and in 1907 which is just when the study was the average weekly wage for an agricultural labourer which is you know a, a good one was 21 shillings and two pence we do know from Leonard Woolley's memoirs some of the men at least in 1906 and 1907, were miners. And that kind of makes sense because they'd be used to that sort of manual work that was required moving the huge tons of earth. But miners were paid 36 shillings a week, which is quite a lot more, but that's perhaps because the job was more dangerous. We don't know if their miners coming to site, they'd be paid the same. But because we have the accounts for the 1907 season, but it just gives us our total wages. We could divide it by the number of weeks we knew they dug and they possible number of men they had on site but then we know that foremen were paid more than you know just a labourer so it'd be a bit a bit a guesswork and I think what's important to say is in this sort of period studies have shown that one third of families lived below the poverty line and the the labourers the guys who are on site they're probably in that group of men um, because the reason they can come and just do five weeks or three months working on site is that they're working in unstable jobs. 
the jobs we say short-term contracts you know if you're an agricultural laborer you're just hired for certain tasks perhaps or if you work in digging ditches or emptying the ash closets you know the to- the outside toilets those aren't steady jobs so these men were very much in the lower working class of society despite that they are sort of the heroes of this story because they are the first ones to sort of break earth and start oh absolutely uh, and pu- i think pulling things out which is you know, um, fantastic you know um leonard woolley who i've mentioned before this first supervisor he talks about how at first the workmen thought it was a bit silly what they were being asked to do because they weren't just being asked to dig as fast as you could and clear the earth which obviously you know they might have been done if they were digging a I don't know a field drainage or something like that they were being asked to do it carefully and watch out for things but as they understood and Woolley and Knowles and Forster you know explained what the point of the work was they became proud of what they were doing and as a really nice story in 1907 they discovered a sculpture of a lion one of our really famous finds from Corbridge and this lion is attacking a goat and the lion attacking a prey is a real important symbol in Roman funerary style. It's a beautiful piece. And Leonard was at the bank getting the workmen's wages for the week. It was a Saturday, so we know they worked six day weeks. And he came back and he said he could sense the excitement. All the men were gathered around and they said, come over, come over, see what we found. And they found this thing and they were so excited that they discovered this piece. And what they wanted to know, the key thing they wanted to know was, was it better than something that had been discovered in Hexham Abbey? Because they wanted their site to have the most interesting and the most exciting thing. And they all went to the pub that evening to toast the discovery of this beautiful thing on their site. Because they were all local. Work we've been doing has shown that they're from the local area. And so they're digging up their history and they're proud of that. That's a lovely story. Did these labourers then return for the next eight seasons? So some of them did. Some of them we know only were there for one season. So... I think later on we'll kind of talk about some of the specific names and the people that we've discovered. We know there was some changeover, but we know some people were there the whole time. And I imagine by the end of it, they were fairly skilled excavators, really. They'd understand the soil of Corbridge. They'd understand what they were supposed to be looking out for, how the layers worked. So, yeah, it's quite interesting to think about that, that they were gardeners or miners, but they became skilled excavators. Yeah, trainee archaeologists, That's apprentices, right, yeah. effectively. And it's not just the labourers who are, are learning, as well as having to supervise the labourers. The supervisors also had to look after some undergraduate students from Oxford who came up and learnt to excavate also on the site. So, mm. yeah, a very early training dig. How big was this first area of excavation in 1906, in, in the first dig? So it's a bit unclear from the plans. They excavated in two areas and surveyed the bridge but it was really quite small because it was only the five weeks as we discussed and it was very much kind of an investigation they thought they'd be able to just answer some quick questions and be off so really quite small compared to what happened later on. Okay the archaeological techniques then used by these fairly novice archaeologists these labourers and the students and the three other chaps who are sort of overseeing the project were these techniques fairly well advanced at the time? I'd like to say yes I think in other areas particularly you know some of the work on the wall that was happening at the same sort of time by Simpson and Gibson actually that Andrew's mentioned in a previous podcast were really quite advanced but unfortunately as Woolley admits, he didn't know what he was doing when he first started. And 
there was definitely things that we wouldn't agree with now as kind of modern excavators. So there was quite a bit of what we now call wall chasing. So you open a trench, you find a wall, and then you just follow it along and keep digging, no matter what else you're going through. But they were able to kind of interpret different layers that they were discovering, which we would call the stratigraphy of a site, you know, and see different layers of occupation. They weren't just hacking through layers. They were finding quite a lot of material. What I would really have liked is if they could have recorded the location of their objects a bit better. For me as a collections curator, knowing where some of these objects came from more closely would be really useful. But we've got to judge them in their time and they could have been better, but they could definitely have been worse. As we've said, the excavations took place for a further eight seasons. What was discovered in later seasons? In that first season in 1906... They were trying to find whether it was a town wall or ditch, as McLaughlin had marked in this plan. That was inconclusive. So they opened up a couple of trenches and they found the southern part of one of the military compounds, which we have on site. And they found part of what they called. So they called they just numbered all their sites. So they started at number one. And by the time they finished in 1914, they were up to 61. So they found quite a lot of different buildings. And site two is perhaps one of our most exciting. It's where the lion was found. And it's the largest house or building on site. It has 23 rooms, which is really quite impressive. It was supplied with underfloor heating. It had painted wall plaster. And they discovered a few rooms of that in 1906. And they finished that off in 1907. And that included two or three granaries, a public fountain, a bathhouse, lots and lots of what we call strip buildings, which are rectangular buildings with a narrow end fronting onto a street. So they're usually dual purpose. At the front, you would have maybe a shop or a workshop. So you're supplying something to the people passing you on the street. And at the back or even upstairs, you might live. So they found a selection of everything that we know about from the site, really. And the kind of scale of excavations is really quite impressive. One thing I'm quite keen to sort of understand is when they've dug these trenches and they're effectively under the surface of the ground and you're describing that they found you know a fountain and this that and the other are those things quite obvious that or is it just that they found the square area where a fountain would have stood or or are these objects literally coming out of the ground yeah so we're very lucky at Corbridge Um, if you visit the site today you come in kind of at the car park and that was the kind of ground level in the Edwardian period and 95% of the archaeology is below. The Roman ground level is much lower than the modern ground level. So they really did take the turf off and start to find the tops of walls and go down to the foundations. In some places, the buildings had been robbed away, so there was only the foundations left. But for instance, for the fountain, it's a fountain with at least two tanks on different levels to allow water to trickle through and sediment settle. And those tanks still exist. You You can still see them. So they were finding much more than the foundations. The granaries, there's 12 courses of stone still remaining, standing and in situ. So the remains were really astounding. Well, they are today really astounding, but to the Edwardians, who completely did not expect this level of remains, they were just astounded. It's great to read quotes from their reports or in the local newspapers of people just almost falling over themselves in excitement about what they're discovering. Yes, it's almost like going into a basement, which you've only just discovered because... You've taken off the topsoil and, and all the yep. other bits of earth. So I suppose it's like that. How, how tall were some of the walls then? Some of them are five foot tall or more, or slightly more at certain points. We have the strong room in 
one of the military compounds, which was all below ground. And you can go right down into that. And that's kind of six foot high, the walls. And some of the walls are obviously much lower, but it's, yeah, it's really amazing. And I think that's what surprised them, that they couldn't believe that it survived so well. I'm surprised that most of the stone wasn't pilfered. and uh... Yeah, huge amounts was, but we just, I think probably were lucky that there was so much stone on site that um, still quite a lot survived. Now, we talked about some of the key excavators in mm-hmm. this story. And what's really interesting is that some photos have come to light of these men. Do we know who these people were? These ordinary people, should we say? Yeah, so what's... Not, not being unkind to them, but... Uh, no, some, of course. You know. Yeah, so what's amazing is that as well as having archaeologists and surveyors on site, they had an official photographer. So a man called J.P. Gibson, who was a chemist in Hexham, the neighbouring town, but also a well-known archaeologist. And he came to record the excavations and there's hundreds of his photos in two or three archives. And a lot of them are of the archaeology and they're very useful for archaeologists to study and go back. But what's always caught my attention and what I've been working on is the photographs of the excavators, the labourers. So some of them are photos as they're working, but some of them he staged, so he's got them to all stand in a line or hold their picks or pose as though they're excavating. We've never known who these people were. There may have been an accounts book from the season that listed all the men and what they were paid, but we don't have that. So we've had these amazing photographs of these men working on the site with no names, but my predecessor in my job, Georgina Plowright, worked with Mike Bishop and they managed to identify two men in the 1990s. And so it gave me a bit of hope that maybe we could find some more. And through quite a lot of work with various people, we've now got 11 names. Which, wow. Yeah. We're probably looking at a lot more men, but I feel like 11's a good start. And nine of those names we can match to a photograph with a man on site. Two of the names, unfortunately, they're just mentioned in an article in the local paper, but there's no photograph. But we looked them up on the census. So, for example, there was a coin hoard found in 1908. That makes the news, you know, these things do, don't they? And it lists the finders as Matthew Scott and Robert Allen. And by going through census records, we can find out that Matthew lived in Wall, which is a village just a few miles away. And he was a cartman while his elder brother was a rockman at the quarry. So that's the sort of jobs that these people have who are coming to work on the site. Robert Allen, who's one of the other finders, he was a labourer. And from the census, what we can see is that in 1911 on the census, he was living with his wife, four daughters, two sons and a grandson, and their house had only two rooms. Goodness me. And they already note there that three of his children had already died. He's got six living children, but three have died, which is, I think, not an uncommon statistic in this period. And those two little snapshots kind of show you the, the sorts of men that are working on this site. That, as we've said, they're working class and not in living in great conditions. There are a couple of other interesting names. There's a chap called Surtees Forster. So Surtees was a boy when he worked on the site. In 1907, the school leaving age was 13. So he left school and his first job was coming and working on the site. We're really lucky that his family have done a lot of research on him and one of them still lives in the village. And he worked for one season at the site and then he went on to become a draper. But he signed up at the outset of World War I, you know, as many of these men will have done. And he became a sergeant in the Northumberland Fusiliers, a local regiment. And sadly, he was killed in action on the 15th of September 1916 on the first day of the Battle of fleur Corselette on the Somme. So he was 24 when he died in 1916, and which is, you know, just awful. But one of the things that I've been able to find out through talking to the family that 
it was 21 years later that his body was found. So his right. body wasn't found for 21 years. And unfortunately, his dad had already died by that point. Mm. So his mother, it was his mother who received the letter from the War Graves Commission saying that they'd found his body and identified him through his tags and that they would rebury him in Longueval Cemetery. But if she wanted to have a message put on, could she send some money? Oh. So he would have his name put on, but nothing else, unless she could provide the money, uh, which I just found absolutely, I was just so shocked by that. I imagine many more of the men who we see working on the site would have signed up to the war. We know that over 100 men from Corbridge died in first, the First World War, which is quite a lot. It's about 5% of the population of the village at the time. and So I imagine, you know, lots of these men would have been on the front. The next interesting name is is one that actually sounds like it could be a building. It's a chap called George Hall. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, so George is one of the other ones who we've been able to really find out quite a lot about. And his family still live in Corbridge, which is great. So I've been able to talk to his grandson and find out quite a lot. So George was one of the men who worked all nine years at the excavations. So one of those men who probably was, by the end of it, really quite skilled. Now, George was born in 1866, and he was born into a family of publicans who owned the Angel Inn, which is still in Corbridge now. And this was sold, and the children were given shares, and George brought another in, the Bluebell, which is also in Corbridge. So he can do a, a pub crawl around the village for his pubs. But he'd married Jemima, who was from Edinburgh, and she had health concerns. They had to move away from the pub trade. And George became the head gardener at a school in Corbridge, and that presumably meant that he had the flexibility to come and dig because the excavations were often during the summer. But his grandson still lives in the village and the family are proud of the fact that he played a part in these excavations. It's well known that that's what he did and talked about. And yeah, I think it's lovely that people still live, live in the village who've got a link back to the site. What about uh, another chap called Robert Henry Guy? What's his story? Ah, yes. He is really quite a complicated story, actually. So I mentioned earlier that my predecessor Georgina and her colleague Mike Bishop had done some work and identified Surtees Forster and George Hall, but not found out much more about them. They wrote a book, well, Mike wrote a book, which showed some of the photographs. And uh, somebody bought this book and was looking through it and said, oh, that's my granddad. (laughs) So, and that was Robert Henry Guy. So Margaret, who was the granddaughter of Robert, spotted a photo of Robert and his friend Billy Nicholson in this book. And that set the family off kind of doing lots more work. And they actually have a photograph of Robert on the site that he was given. So we don't know if other families might have photographs in their attic of their relatives looking like they're digging somewhere because I imagine if Robert was given one he wouldn't be the only one and Robert was born in 1884 and he was actually adopted and lived in Corbridge and he worked a real variety of jobs he was a butcher a gardener a mason's labourer and also an ash closet scraper which is someone who came and emptied your outside toilet and took it to the farmers to be used as a fertiliser on the fields Mm. Um, so he's a real typical you know labor who's just taking whatever job he can get and he died in the mid 1940s and the family story is that he drank poison to kill himself this is because he was very ill and he was worried about the financial burden that he would put on his family by having to care for him when i was told this i couldn't believe it but that's before the nhs 
you know, poor families really had a dilemma when medical help would cost them mm. more than they could afford. It was it's really quite sad. But yeah, the family now are really excited that we've been able to tell his story. Just those three names then, George Hall, Surtees Forster, Robert Henry Guy, it really doesn't just tell you about the story of the excavation of Coria, of Corbridge, but also of the wider national, social, geopolitical situation that was going on at that time. It, they really fit into this wider tapestry of British history. They don't do. They? It's been so fascinating. And, you know, on a really simple level, you look at the photographs and you can tell who's a supervisor because they're wearing a straw boater. Whereas right, all the yeah. labourers are wearing flat caps. So you can immediately start to see class divides through the fashion that they're wearing. The supervisors are middle and upper class, whereas all the labourers are that lower working class. And being able to find out some information about them has just been it's been a real privilege, actually, to learn about these men who we know from the ones who've talked about it with their family that they were proud of the part they played on the site. You know, it wasn't just another job for them. Yeah, and it's... It's just been fascinating. So fashions and photos are two ways that these labourers have been identified. Are there any other ways? You mentioned census. Any other documents? I had a great volunteer who went through every issue of the local paper, the Hexham Courant, from 1906 to 1914, um, looking for any reference to the excavations. Luckily, her husband worked for the Courant, so she just took home the actual archive broadsheets because this was during lockdown right. so we couldn't get to libraries etc etc and she just sat during lockdown going through wow. um, because they're not digitized they're only on a microfiche in the library which was obviously closed right. <laughs> because the timing of this project yeah didn't aid us because what i was really hoping to do was take all my photos out to wi institutes age concern groups nursing homes just try and find these people whose families have lived in the time value for generations who might recognize their relatives but jane um, managed to find out six names from the paper and then once we got those names we went to look through the census records jane and i had a go and we started to realize that there's quite a lot of surnames that are quite common in the time valley and that the newspaper made quite a few spelling mistakes in names and we we're getting ourselves confused so one of our other volunteers lynn who'd done lots of work was able to help us and so the census was brilliant because 1911 censuses is the perfect time for us. I also just put out lots of calls, so local parish churches who do newsletters, the parish councils who do newsletters, Facebook groups, you know, of local history groups, and said, does anybody know anybody who might have been involved in the excavations? Kind of a bit of a cold call, I suppose. And our best way really was through the newspaper reports and then also when family members got in touch. So I was able to get in touch with, as I said, George Hall's grandson, Robert Henry Guy's family and Surti Forster's family. I'm just hoping that more people will come forward as we tell them about this project. Yes, I think that's really important. But one of the things that we covered in a recent English Heritage podcast is groundbreaking female archaeologists. Now, were there any women working on these excavations? Well, unfortunately, the only woman I can find that had any involvement with the site was Robert Forster, so one of the supervisors. When he married in 1913, his wife, Margaret Hope Payne, came up with him for the two seasons of 1913 and 14. And the reports say that she helped with illustrating and reconstructing some of the pottery but we can't find any reference other than that. I mean, the manual work, the labouring work, definitely wouldn't have been something that women would have done. But it feels like at that sort of time up here, it was just the men on site, which is a real shame. 
So after all these seasons, a total of nine seasons, how much had been discovered in terms of space? If you could describe it perhaps in terms of football pitches or something like that. The total area is about 56 acres and that equates to kind of about 37 football pitches. So it's really quite big. And when you think about the men working there, the supervisors and the labourers, and the depth of the archaeology, they're literally moving hundreds of tonnes of earth and stone. It's a phenomenal undertaking. So then listeners are probably thinking, well, did they return in later decades, dig out other parts? Yeah, so obviously World War One interrupted the excavations and the scale was never really the same again. Between the two wars, a couple of archaeologists, Eric Burley and Ian Richmond, you know, well-known in Roman studies, did come back and do some smaller excavations. And then in 1946, Durham University started their train excavation here every year and that ran through till 1973, so a very long-running excavation. But this focused just on the central part of the site that visitors can see now, which was a field that in 1933 the landowner gave to the nation to keep open. So actually what visitors see now is a very small part of the site, um, you know, Roman corbridges and all the fields surrounding. So it's never on that same scale again. Things just changed and, and moved on. You know, the later excavations found out a lot more about the intricacies of the various phases of those early forts, but didn't discover any new buildings or anything. They were just re-excavating areas that the Edwardians hadn't looked at in detail. You mentioned a few times throughout our discussion that um, this is all part of a wider project, all this information that you've been digging out, so to speak. Uh, Excuse the pun. How is English Heritage marking this research that you've uncovered? So we have an exhibition on a Corbridge Roman site called Extraordinary Excavations, and that's a photography exhibition highlighting these amazing photographs and telling the stories of the men and that's on until the 31st of October so there's plenty of time to come and see it. And how can people get involved with identifying some of those labourers pictured in the photographs who we don't have names for? We have a selection of the images that we think people might be able to use to identify people on a website called Micropasts. And that's a kind of a crowdsourcing web page where people can help with lots of projects. They're hosting our images for us. So if you just Google micropasts, you'll be able to see the Corbridge photographs there. So have a look or get in touch with the site if you think, oh, I remember my great uncle or my granddad talking about doing some digging and maybe this might be linked to it. And then come and see the exhibition, have a look and see whether you recognise any faces. That really humanises, I think, the whole story, doesn't it, this new exhibition, which is great. But what else in terms of the deeper past, what these labourers and archaeologists uncovered, can people see in the museum that will get them really close to Roman life? I love our museum at Corbridge. We redid the display there in 2018 and we were able to get some amazing pieces out. We've got the Corbridge Lion, who we've discussed. We have a replica of the Corbridge Langs, again, that we've discussed because the originals at the British Museum, but we have objects telling us about the military phase of the site. We have lots of objects talking about the town part and production and manufacture and trade, daily life. We've got some you know, beautiful pottery vessels, items from the table like knives and spoons and bowls. Our collection from Corbridge is just amazing. I could have filled double the number of cases with objects. So come and have a look and learn about Roman life, but also find out about the discovery and the excitement these men felt when they were uncovering these remains. 
Earlier on, I kind of described these people as heroes, really. How much do we owe to these original Edwardian excavators for our current knowledge of Corbridge, Coria? Well, we owe huge amounts, really. Much of the site was only excavated by them. So if it hadn't been excavated, we would know nothing. They weren't perfect in their methods, as we've discussed, but the plans from Knowles, the architect, and the photos of Gibson, as well as the reports by Forster, do you mean that we can go back and check and reinterpret it? Because although they didn't always interpret things brilliantly, they often recorded it so well that we can reassess things. So, for example, there's one building that they thought was a pottery shop which burnt down, but we know it's not that simple. There was actual burning only in one layer of the site and some of the pottery doesn't relate to the burning we've been able to reinterpret that because they left good records but yeah I think for me what we owe is the discovery of this amazing site and also I love their excitement which really comes through in their reports and in the notes in the local paper and I find it's a similar sentiment to what we have when visitors arrive because often visitors come to Roman Corbridge with not much knowledge of what might be there People will know about Hadrian's Wall, but they won't know about a town. And they come and they're generally, you know, taken aback by the collection and the site and, you know, the level of preservation. And that's what they felt as they excavated it. The final question then, Francis, is how much more is there to learn about Corbridge Roman Town? Oh, where to start? So where are the kilns? We know at least two named potters who are based here. We have some of their work. But we've not found their kilns. Where are the temples? We've got a huge amount of religious stonework, but most of it wasn't found in situ, it was found reused. We have a PhD student at the moment looking at the distribution of finds across the site. There's a PhD student using our coins. There's someone hopefully soon starting looking at the 4th century pottery so we can understand what's happening. There's huge amounts. Well, thank you, Francis, for talking to us. It's been really fascinating. I think this is a just another layer of the story that is Corbridge Roman Town or Coria which is part of the wider story of Hadrian's Wall, the Roman occupation in Britain, the Roman Empire, etc, etc. It really just goes really, really deep, doesn't it? That's right. And for me, understanding the excavation and the research on a site is really important because we understand the site because of how it's been excavated or how it's been researched. So you need to understand the methods that people were undertaking and the time they were working in because we're getting our evidence through the lens of their work so we need to understand what they were doing and for me it's also really important to give those labourers their place in the history of Corbridge. Absolutely and um, we wish you well with the current exhibition which is on until October 2022. That's right, right till the end of the season. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll talk all things castles with historian and author of a new book on the subject, John Goodall, including how to define one. Actually, if people call something a castle, it's our job as historians to explain why they call it a castle rather than telling them they somehow got it wrong. Thanks for listening. See you next time.